So let's uh, begin to look now at a little bit of an introduction into the book of James. I'll just begin by reading the first verse. As I said, we went through verses 1 through 12 this morning, and then we're going to just do an overview tonight, just kind of take our time and look at some of the main features of the book, get a little bit better information about the book as you folks head into your more in-depth study of the rest of the epistle to James. I hope I said correctly this morning. I was thinking again. I may have said a few times earliest book of the New Testament written, and should have been more properly said, the earliest epistle or letter that was written to Christians besides the Gospels, which some of them were written uh, probably you know, somewhat earlier than James was written. But the first letter to the Christians after the writing of the Gospels, at least that's what it seems. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers or various forms of trials or testings or temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. So let's think for a moment and establish from the Scripture the, as best we can about the authorship of the book of James. And we'll begin in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 13. There will be a few points that were covered this morning, but then again, I know not everybody that's here tonight was up front this morning. Matthew chapter 13, and verse 55. Backing up just for context, verse 54, when he was coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence has has this man this wisdom or these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? So we remember that uh, there is no basis for the false notion that somehow Mary remained a virgin for the rest of her life or never had children after the Lord was born. Of course, those children would have obviously been different because of the divine nature of our Lord Jesus. But yet he had brothers and he had sisters. Mark chapter 6 in verse 3. Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judah, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us. Now, I I take it from the reading and the listing of the names that James is generally listed first as we see it, so he probably was the oldest next to the Lord Jesus. He would have been the elder, you know, the the oldest brother next to him and older than the rest of them. And then uh, looking in John chapter 7, Gospel of John in chapter 7, verse 1, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence, and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. 
That's a significant verse, because no matter how many brothers the Lord have, at this point we find uh, early in his public ministry, so to speak, that his brothers did not believe in him. That tells us another thing that we saw as we were just working through some of this on Saturday morning, that the notion that somehow when the Lord was a child, he performed all sort of spectacular miracles and you know, made birds out of clay and made them to fly and all that kind of a thing. Uh, it seems to me that they would have thought perhaps he was an exceptional child, but those type of things would have certainly pointed to something else. They did not believe in him, even at this point, when he's already performed certain miracles. But they did want to push him to the forefront, make it known openly, if this is who you are, uh, this is good PR, you know, uh, do an open uh, campaign, so to speak. But that, that wasn't the time as we know. And then one of the great significant verses, and we'll go a little bit forward and then we'll back up, is found in uh, 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. First Corinthians in chapter 15. And the testimony of the resurrection that says that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, verse 4, that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, and that after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain under this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. He was seen of James. There seems to have been a, a certain appearance to James, a significant appearance. Was it at that time that James then believed that his half-brother, if you will, was indeed the Son of God? What a startling revelation that must have been. Of course, James wasn't the only one that had to come to that belief. Actually, none of the disciples believed, did they? The Lord told him, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to be abused, uh, this is going to happen, I'm going to rise from the dead, and, and they would, even Peter would take him and rebuke him. Not so, Lord. <laughs> so they didn't even believe. And when he finally was crucified, even at that point they didn't believe. Because they ran, and they hid in fear. And even when the women came and said, we've seen him. Even then they didn't believe. Not all of them anyway. Until they came and saw the evidence themselves. That's an important point, by the way. It's an important point in, in what you might think of in the area of apologetics. Because these people might have been followers of the Lord Jesus, but they weren't readily fooled by you know, some mass hysteria or something. Neither were they just swallowing everything that came down the pike. They didn't believe. Something changed them. And what changed him was the resurrection of Christ. That changed Peter from a, a cowering coward in some senses to a bold proclaimer of the reality of who the Son of God is before those there at Jerusalem. You know, I'll never forget certain experiences in life that happened. I probably have told this before, but that's okay. I'll tell it again. Uh, we were privileged in 2005. Matter of fact, as soon as we got back off that trip, we came here to Israel, and I was slamming it over at Bob and Judy's house. I think you folks were gone, and, and oh, what, what trust, confidence, or maybe something else to let us just have run of the house, you know. <laughs> 
But I was trying to put slides together because we just come off this Israel trip, and you know, you go over there, you take you know thousands of pictures, and trying to put something together to do here, which eventually we did. But anyway, um, it's funny the things that hit you if you ever have a chance to go to something like that, and it isn't always what you think. And one of the first things that really made a significant impact to me to this day. I don't think it's there anymore because they were talking about moving it, but they used to have a, a very large scale model of the city as it was in the times of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus. And it would probably be about half the size of this room. So it's pretty big. You know, you walk around. It was outside. There was no roof or anything on it. And um, so they, they kind of like to take you there if you do the Jerusalem part first so you kind of get an idea of the layout of the city. So there's some helpful things there. Like one of the helpful things, there's, there was on that model a, a red arrow pointing to a point on the wall of the foundation of the wall of the temple. So they said that when you get to the Wailing Wall, that, that's where it is, that little piece of the foundation you know, of the temple that was there. So you kind of get a little perspective. But I was looking at it, and we had this Jewish guide whose name uh, in English was Paul. His Spanish name was Pablo, and his Hebrew name was Phineas, and his last name was Polish, and I can't even pronounce it. Uh, but he had been in Poland and during the Holocaust sent to South America, hence the Spanish name and speaking the Spanish language and so on. But he was an amazing man. His knowledge of Scripture, to be not a professed believer in Christ at all, but his knowledge of New Testament Scripture was, it was amazing. And so I would always kind of try to get next to him and like punch a button and ask him questions about things, you know. So we're looking at this representation of the Temple Mount and the day of Christ, and you see these, uh, they look like boat ramps, you know, out of stone that angled down into the, into the ground at a certain depth. So, you know, you've got a rectangular thing and, and this sloping, downward sloping ramp like that. And I said, Paul, what, what, what's the significance of that? He says, oh, those, those would have been for the waters of purification that they would have used for the temple right there in front of the temple wall and I said oh you mean for the ceremonial cleansings yes of the priest and so on and then he said this this is what he said where do you think they had the water to baptize those 3,000 on the day of Pentecost and I'm like whoa I still get chills when I think about it and my mind began to think are you telling me that they took those people down into those ceremonial pools and in the face of that temple right there Peter looked at them and said repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sin you publicly crucified him now right in front of this temple wall you publicly declare your faith in him and go down to that water I'm like whoo whether it's true or not, the thought of it was just incredible, you know, the perspective it brought to that. What made Peter be able to stand in front of that temple and say, there's one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, the name of Jesus Christ. 
the resurrection. That still strengthens our faith to this day, doesn't it? James will call him in one of the few references in the book of James that we have to the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. And so significant in that resurrection appearance that the Lord Jesus made to him. Acts chapter 1. Verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. So we see at this time that his brethren, at least some of them, were there in preparation for the coming day of Pentecost. Fast forward now to Acts chapter 12 and verse 17. But he, beckoning unto them with his hand to hold their peace, that is, Peter, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, Go show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he he departed and he went into another place. Now, one of the things that you see begin to uh, take place in the book of Acts is that James, the brother of the Lord, the half-brother of the Lord, because there's several Jameses mentioned, and that's what we're trying to do is identify the right one. But this James, who apparently had the um, credibility to write a letter of the New Testament, rises to prominence in that early Jewish church. Acts and chapter 15. In verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. So at this point at the Jerusalem Council, one of the leaders that's there is James. God had raised him up at that point to be a leader among the church there as it was gathered primarily at Jerusalem. Acts 21:18. The day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And then one final reference that's found in the book of Galatians in chapter 2. Galatians in chapter 2, in verse 12. Paul, speaking of the gospel which he preached, which he received not of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. goes on to speak a bit about his background and pedigree and so on. And then uh, he says in verse 18, After three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. Perhaps one of the clearest New Testament epistle references to the James, who was uh, the Lord's brother. Now he's going to go on to say in verse nine of chapter two in the book of Acts, uh, the book of Galatians. I'm sorry, that when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, and so on, they gave to us the right hand of fellowship. So James was a well-known leader there and concerned himself primarily with the Jews. But that would have been only natural since at the beginning that's what the church was made of. It was made exclusively of Jews 
perhaps proselytes at the beginning, but those who were under Judaism until the break came in Acts chapter 10 with the conversion of Cornelius and God opening the door to the Gentiles. And so it was a Jewish church in that sense, if you will, although God knew that that body, that middle wall of partition had been broken down when Christ died on the cross and that Jew and Gentile would be combined together to make one new man. But it didn't happen like that. It took a number of years before that took place historically in the book of Acts. So James concerned himself uh, primarily with with the Jews that were there about Jerusalem, they of the circumcision, as they would have been called. And when you read the letter of James, you can begin to list some of the vocabulary that's used and find that it's very similar to the vocabulary that he uses in the Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15. So with that in mind, just speaking about the authorship, let's go back to James now and think a little bit about uh, the timing of the writing of it, see what the internal evidence might be. In James chapter 2, he's going to say in verse 1, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring, in goodly apparel, and so on, and so on. He uses the word synagogue here. Now later he's going to use the word uh, in the latter chapters for church. But at this point, he still uses the word synagogue. Because, as you know, many of the early believers still met in some capacity in the synagogue until the break came, you know, cleanly. But even Paul would go first to the Jews, to the synagogue, the gathering. The synagogue did not have to be, by the way, a physical building like we think of. That should help us when we think of the church. Church isn't a physical building. It's a body of believers, isn't it? It's a, it's a group of saved people. And the synagogue, there was no requirement that synagogue had to be a building. When you read that in Acts chapter 16, Paul there at Philippi went down to the river, the place where prayer was wont to be made. That could have been a synagogue. If you had ten Jewish people who gathered together, that in a sense could qualify as a synagogue. Although later they would come to use buildings as they do now. But it, it, it didn't mean necessarily that it was the building. It was that group gathered there under Judaism in, that, in one sense. But, of course, these would have been Christian Jews, as we've already mentioned. So it's a very early epistle. It's uh, important to know that, too, for another reason. Most of you, if you read any commentaries on the book of James, you're going to come across somebody who will quote what Martin Luther's opinion of the book was. And Martin Luther's opinion of the book is it's a right straw-y epistle, epistle made of straw. He didn't think much of the book of James. And the reason why he didn't think much of the book of James is because when you get to Acts, uh, to James chapter uh, 2, James is going to say that justification is by works. And I commend whoever it is that will take up that section and deal with it when it comes your time in James chapter 2 to tell us what he means there by justification by works. As you know, Paul and Martin Luther uh, proclaimed the truth of justification by faith. So there would have been those that thought, well, if James was written later than Paul, he wrote it to correct Paul. But the fact that it was written before Paul ever wrote, and before Paul ever had that revelation of the gospel of the grace of God, is very significant. He didn't write it to correct Paul. And in no way does it contradict Paul. 
You'll have to see what the balance is there in the scripture between justification by faith and justification by works. So it's very early written. His style, as we mentioned, is very terse. It's very Proverbs-like. It's very black and white. It's very take away the middle ground, force you to a place of judgment. You're either this or you're that. Which one are you? Very much like that. Very much Sermon on the Mount-like. Blessed is the man, certain beatitudes. Blessed is the person, and so on. He's big on metaphors. If you haven't noticed, let's look at a few of them. We saw some this morning, chapter 1 and verse 6. The one who wavers is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. He loves to use word pictures uh, that are uh, mostly drawn from natural things around. He says in verse 10, uh, the rich rejoices in that he's made low like a flower of the grass. He shall pass away. Verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begotten us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Look in chapter 3 and listen to some of the word pictures that he'll draw there. Chapter 3 and and verse 3. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us. And we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, though they be so great, they're driven of fierce winds and they're turned about with a very small helm. The tongue is a little member, boasteth great things. Can you visualize this in your mouth? Here's this little member of the tongue, but he boasts great things. You see... And how great a matter a little fire can kindle. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Defiles the whole body, sets on fire the course of nature, set on fire of hell itself, he says. Wow. Like I said this morning, he sort of sounds a tone like the Old Testament prophets in many ways. So he's very vivid, isn't he, in his... In his descriptions, in his word picture, the tongue no man can tame. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. He's good at bringing out those pictures from the natural realm, those illustrations type of thing that he does throughout the book. Now when it comes to the content of James, I want to word myself very carefully, so hopefully uh, to not be misunderstood. The content of the book of James, it is a very Jewish letter. And what I mean by that is, if you eliminate the few passages that refer to the Lord Jesus Christ, this book could easily fit anywhere in the Old Testament. Take away those passages that have to do with the Lord Jesus Christ... And this book can fit right in there with Proverbs or, you know, any of those other wisdom books or any of that kind of thing. It's very Jewish in that sense. And when we think of this as well, the omissions from the book of James, what's not there? No mention of the Lord's birth. No mention of his sufferings. No mention of his death. 
No mention of his resurrection, except in an inference by saying, you know, he's the Lord of glory. There's no mention of Gentiles in the church. There's no mention of the body of Christ. There is not even really, and here I've got to really be careful, a clear enunciation of the gospel. Now, I've preached the gospel from James. What is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a short time and then vanishes away, you see. But as far as the clarity of presenting the gospel of the grace of God as Paul does, you're not going to find it in the book of James. And so for that reason, there have been those who have felt the book is not for us. And I'll address that in just a moment. I do want to read something that's found in the old uh, Schofield Bible. And it's found just before the book of Hebrews. And it's a comment on what, what he calls the Jewish Christian epistles. And Schofield said this, In Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, and Jude, we have a group of inspired writings differing in important respects from Paul's epistles. But this difference is in no sense one of conflict. All present the same Christ, the same salvation, the same morality. The difference is one of extension, of development. The Jewish Christian writings deal with the elementary and foundational things of the gospel, while to Paul were given the revelations concerning the church, her place in the counsels of God, and the calling and hope of the believer as vitally united to Christ in the one body. The other characteristic difference is that while Paul has in view the body of true believers who are therefore assuredly saved, the Judeo-Christian writers view the church as a professing body in which during this age the wheat and tares are mingled. Their writings therefore abound in warnings calculated to arouse and alarm the mere professor, and so on. You can read, if you have an old Schofield Bible, I'm not sure exactly what the news says, but that is found just preceding the book of Hebrews in the old Schofield Bible. A very helpful comment, I feel, on these Jewish Christian letters. Although you notice the development. I would put Peter in that category, Right? of who Peter's target audience is, if you will. Yet by the time that Peter writes, there he's already moving from the center of uh, things being Jerusalem to the thing that attracts believers now is not Jerusalem, not the Wailing Wall, not the nation of Israel, but the Lord Jesus, a spiritual temple a spiritual body, if you will, a new temple, a new man, and, all, and that whole new priesthood concept of First Peter chapter 2. So there's quite a bit of development, although you'll still get a little bit of the Jewish flavor uh, in some of those letters as well. Target audience. And yet we know that as we uh, have mentioned these 12 tribes that were scattered abroad. We looked this morning in the book of Acts at numerous passages that tell us that these were Jews who'd been scattered, but they weren't just Israelites. These were Jewish Christians. These were people who'd come to believe in Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God. 
And because of their faith, the persecution had come in. They had been scattered throughout all the regions of the world, as we saw uh, this morning. And it is to those that James initially writes. Look in chapter 2 again. It's clear that this is for Christians as well, because he'll, he'll say it right out in chapter 2, verse 1, won't he? My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory with respect of persons. So the faith that he is addressing is the faith of or in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is for me. This is for you, no matter how elementary it may have first been. He says in verse 5, hearken, my beloved Brethren, the kingdom which he's promised to them that love him. He says in verse 7, Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called. Now that's a very important distinction, isn't it? Because certainly the Israelites were the called and chosen of God in that sense at one time. And yet... The name which they were known by, Hebrews or Jews or Israelis or whatever, you see. They were known as believers in the one God, monotheistic and so on. But it's quite different for those who believe in Christ, isn't it? That's the name by which we are called. Matter of fact, that's how that name first came about. They didn't go around saying, we're Christians. They were first called Christians. Someone saw them and said, they're Christ ones. Would to God that be said of us in the right way. I never forget an experience I had working with a man years ago when I was working at a radio station and he was doing some carpentry work and trying to witness to him and I couldn't quite get a read where he was at. You know what I mean, trying to figure out and stuff. And so uh, finally, you know, it, it, I, I, it seemed to get the sense that the guy was really a believer, you know. I said, are you a Christian? I'd never call myself that. What do you mean you'd never call yourself that? I would never call myself that. What are you talking about? Well, for me to take that name, that's not for me. If someone else were to point to me and say he must be... I never heard anybody say that, you know. It kind of blew me away. It was an interesting perspective, wasn't it? He wasn't saying he wasn't saved. He was just saying it wouldn't be him that would take that name and call himself a Christian. I thought, whoa, that was a new one. <laughs> but an interesting perspective, isn't it? They were first called Christians at Antioch. And yet, we know that that is that worthy name uh, by which we are called. And of course, you have in the very first verse, don't you, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there it is. This letter is written for us um, as well. The um, very brief outline that I would suggest, one of my favorite books, you can probably get it on eBay, you can get most anything on eBay now. By the way, did you know that Schofield Bibles are bringing top dollar on eBay? I mean, serious money. It's crazy. If I even begin to tell you how much some of the old Schofield Bibles are selling for, you're going to go start digging on your bookshelves at home before Christmas, you know. i got a friend who has alerts come up on his phone for nothing but Schofield Bibles. Ding! Ooh, there's one. Nice leather bound, you know, whatever. Anyway, 
happens to be what I have here, but nevertheless, uh, what did I say that for? Uh, <laughs> oh, the outline, yeah. That's not the book I wanted you to buy on eBay. If you don't have and you ever come across the old Unger's Handbook, the little one, the Unger's Bible Handbook, that has been one of the most helpful books to me in 35 years. Um, the difference in a Bible handbook and uh, a Bible dictionary, a Bible handbook will take each book of the Bible in order, give you a little outline, talk about the authorship, talk about the introduction, give you a little outline, go through it, but you know, obviously not in detail because it's short. And in the midst of that, Unger, who excelled in archaeological things as well, he'll give you archaeology, pictures and things. Now, there's a new Unger's handbook. It's a big one. It's pretty good. You know, I mean, it's average book size. The old Unger's was a small one. I think it was only like, you know, five or six inches tall maybe and like that. Extremely helpful to me, at least. Not everybody flies at the same altitude, but nevertheless... um, It may not be your cup of tea, but uh, I found it to be extremely helpful. So his outline is very simple. Chapter 1, living faith tested by trial. Chapter 2, living faith proved by works. Chapters 3 and 4, living faith evidenced by conduct. And chapter 5, living faith exercised by persecution. So in each one of those living faith are the first two key words as he takes that to be the general overall theme. Living faith that's tested by trial, proved by works, evidenced by conduct, and exercised by persecution. So let's think now, just for briefly a moment, about the chapters of the book of James. And I'm just going to give you seven points that have to do with the book. Very basic, very broad outline questions that sort of bring to the surface what the book of James is about. Number one. When it comes to trials, do we trust God in trials? That's what he's going to get at at the beginning. The double-minded man does not. He'll receive nothing of the Lord. That man won't. Ask in faith. Don't be a doubter. Believe God in the midst of your trial. Why is that important? Let's just... Look back for a moment, keep your place in the book of James, turn to a fairly well-known by most people section of Scripture that's found in the book of Numbers in chapter 20. You remember that the Israelites at this point, once again, strived with Moses, said that statement that is almost just... Impossible to imagine. Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. You brought us out here in the middle of this wilderness, us and our children, that we should die. What an impugning of the character of God. You brought us out here in the middle of this wilderness for us and our children to die. Would have been better to be back in Egypt. And so 
The Lord speaks to Moses in verse 7, says, Take the rod, gather thou the assembly together, thou, Aaron thy brother, speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. It shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beast drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. Now, let me just interject at this point. Sometimes it's good to think about what the scripture says in specificity. He took the rod that was from before the Lord. Do you remember which rod it was that was before the Lord? It was the rod that budded, that brought forth almonds and blossoms and buds, all the different stages of life. That rod that speaks of Christ in resurrection and the capacity he is in even now. His high, high priestly identity. He took that rod, and Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beast also. Now, many a sermon has been pe preached on this passage, including by me, and rightly so, to point out some of the really significant things. It is true that in doing what Moses did, he destroyed a typological picture that Christ only need die once. The rock had been smitten in Exodus 17. All he now, needed now to do was to speak to the rock. The water would come forth. Valuable lesson. The valuable lesson, too, of obedience. And the valuable lesson that supernatural blessing, real supernatural blessing, is not always an indicator that it's God's will. That's important because sometimes we see people doing things and they're not doing it in the right way. They're not doing it in a scriptural way. And they're seeing real true blessing that we can't deny. Maybe people are getting saved and lives are being changed, but they're not doing it the right way, scripturally speaking, and that's important. And it makes us scratch our head to say, wait a minute. And we can't doubt the reality of the blessing. But as we see from this passage, there's a cost for disobedience, isn't there? Moses was barred from ever entering the promised land because of this act. There's a big part of us that could sympathize with the man. How long had he put up with his people? And they're bickering and complaining and griping and moaning, and striving with him and impugning the character of God. And so he lost his cool one time. It's almost hard to fault him, isn't it, from that perspective? But along with those lessons, it's important to see what God said. What God said. And what he said in verse 12 is this. The Lord spake unto Moses... And Aaron, because you believed me not. You didn't believe me. Oh, how important it is in the midst of trials to believe God. <laughs> Which is what James is getting at in the very first, you see. And because you didn't believe me. And you didn't sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. You will not bring this congregation unto the land. So even though he did it wrong, 
The water still came forth supernaturally. The people were blessed and had life. But Moses, in the midst of that trial, did not believe God. And in turn, impugned the character of God. Failed to sanctify Him in the eyes of the people. Gave a wrong picture of God. God does delight to give rebels water, doesn't He? That is the character of God. They didn't believe. It's so important, isn't it, to believe in the midst of a trial? That's number one. Number two, is my religion real? We went over this on Friday night. Am I genuine? Am I for real? There were a number of tests, primarily centered around the Word of God and my, uh, my attitude towards the Word of God and so on. If we turn to chapter 2, am I a person who's prejudiced? There are all sorts of prejudice, all sorts of bias. Do I show favoritism? And what is the basis of my favoritism? I mean, just break the basic word prejudice down. It means to prejudge, right? So I prejudge a person on what basis? I've already formed my opinion of you based on the way you're dressed. I've already formed my opinion on you based on the color of your skin. I've already formed my opinion of you based on your ethnicity. I've already formed my opinion of you based on the amount of money you seem to project. James will deal with that. It's one thing in the world for it to happen. Now I say, the beauty to me of the body of Christ is just take a look around <laughs> in this room. You know, most of us in some ways have very little in common. <laughs> Except we've got this one great thing, don't we, that unites us and makes us family. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing. The world never gets it. Here's your answer. People get saved. Of course, the church hasn't always done it right, have they? The church hasn't always gotten it right. Christians don't always get it right. And James will address that. Do I show favoritism? Am I prejudiced? On what basis? Chapter 2 will also bring before us the evidences of salvation. And um, ooh, I certainly don't want to step on anybody's, uh, you know, get into their territory here, uh, except to say that when you, if you do go back to that passage in Genesis 22 to talk about Abraham being justified by works, and it isn't mandatory that you do that, but I mean, should you, whoever has that section, it's interesting to see that God is the one who said, now I know. <laughs> and yes, he was justified by his works before the men on the mountain and Isaac and all the rest, but it was ultimately God who said, now I know. That faith must be tested by works. And it's not a trite thing to say, is it, that the faith that saves, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. James says it should bring forth works. There should be produced something in it. The evidence of my salvation. What about my speech? What about my tongue? What about that thing that James says is an unruly master? That little member of my body that can 
be used for blessing and can cause such enormous devastation. Oh, how words can hurt people. I tell you, it's unfortunate that we Christians sometimes can be downright mean and ugly to one another. It ought not to be, James will say. How can a fountain give forth bitter water and sweet at the same time? Can't be, you see. How can we speak well of God and not speak well of our brethren, sisters in the Lord Jesus? James is going to get it right down to the nitty-gritty, isn't it? I mentioned on Saturday morning, I believe it was, the gifts of God that distinguish human beings from the rest of the created world. The highest God-given attributes of the personality. James will deal with these in chapters 3, 4, and 5. Speech separates us from the animal kingdom. Our desires and pleasures, chapter 4, separates us from the lower creatures, if you will. And our sense of moral judgment of right and wrong, chapter 5, James gets at these things, these traits that are be brought under the control in order to come to the place of spiritual maturity. Three areas of life that James says are the marks of that one who is perfect or mature or entire, lacking nothing in that sense, mature. My speech, what I say and how I say it, my desires and pleasures, and my sense of what is right and what is wrong. Pretty basic stuff. The ruination of those gifts given to humans can produce some of the worst filth and destruction imaginable. But the recapturing of those attributes by God, well, bringing them under the rule of the Redeemer, of our Lord in that sense, that is the major struggle of our Christian life in one sense, isn't it? So what about my words and tongue? Chapter 4, he's going to ask a, a question. Want another one of those, take away the middle ground. Am I a friend of the world? Or am I a friend of God? Can't be both, James will say. You can't be both. How can you be a friend of God? be a friend of the world. And part of my struggle, and maybe part of yours, is to really understand what he means by the world. There have been all kind of notions proffered about what the world is and what it isn't, what's worldly and what isn't. Christians over the years have developed their list. The dirty dozen, the nasty nine, you know, the evil five, the big five and all that. And those lists come and go. But the world is the world. And the essence of it. And it's a potent question to ask myself. Am I a friend of God? Or am I a friend of the world? And then getting down to the basics again. Real basics in chapter 5. The seventh thing. What about life's injustices? What about the unfairness of life? In very basic things like wages, what I make, how I'm paid, how employers may treat me, 
and the bigger picture of the, the perceived and sometimes real injustices of life, the inequalities of life, the unfairness that sometimes occurs. I'll give you one part of a verse. Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. One day those things will be made right. And I'm going to tell you, all the protesting and all the battling and everything else in this life is never going to change it because that's not going to change the nature of man, of humanity. <laughs> you live long enough, and sometimes it doesn't take long. You're going to suffer injustice. You're going to suffer unfairness. You're going to have things hit you that aren't right. But the one thing that we take some solace in, at least, and maybe one of the major things, is that one day it will be made right. You be patient, persevere unto the coming of the Lord. Be patient and establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh, James will say. There will come a day of reckoning, and righteousness will rule and reign once more. So a little bit of introduction to some of the general themes and other things that have to do with the book of James. Father, we thank you for a very practical book like this. We feel sorry for Martin Luther. He could have got a lot out of this book. But we're thankful for Martin and the stand he had to take in the day in which he lived, Lord. Not many of us have faced what he faced to take a stand for your truth as he did. So, having said that, Lord, we thank you for the practicality of this book. Pray that it will be a real help in a very practical way in the assembly in the days ahead. As we seek to do what James has told us already, to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. I give you thanks again for your Son, the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. We like the way that James refers to him as the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, not coming across in this book as, I'm James the elder, I'm James the leader, James a servant of God. What a lessons even in that for us, Lord. A man that you raised up to such a prominent position in the early church, and yet he saw himself as a servant of God. May folks see us like that as well. We give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.